Coming to you from a library. Wait, that's it? Just a library? <laughs> not, a, not a haunted library? Not, not a murder library? Just, just a library. Okay, ooh, a library. It's the Little Podcast of Horrors. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Little Podcast of Horrors. Uh, we have a really special episode today because on the show with us, we have Dr. Justin Sledge. And thank you for joining us today to to hang out. Yeah, thank yeah. you for, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for having me. I always love uh, love doing uh, podcast conversations. They're always a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you all for hanging out with me. Absolutely. So uh, Dr. Sledge um, has a, well, let me back up a little bit. So uh, we've done a few interviews this season with uh, folks from various different backgrounds, uh, including, you know, someone who practices magical arts and across the spectrum, but we haven't heard from academia. And that's why I wanted to bring Dr. Sledge in to get some some history and philosophy of, of some of the topics that, that are in our, our wheelhouse, if you will. So uh, Dr. Sledge is a You've got a DRS in religious studies, if I understand correctly, uh, specializing in Western esotericism and related currents from the University of Amsterdam. And uh, you have an MA and PhD in philosophy from the University of Memphis. Yeah, a lot, lot of, lot of uh, letters beside my, my name that cost a lot of money. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you host your, your own YouTube channel, uh, Esoterica that explores the arcane history, philosophy, and religion. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and just a disclaimer for me, you're going to see my eyes darting back and forth. I, I took a, you know, I always write my questions down for my interviews, but I, I especially went the detail because even though I've been your videos all the time, I wanted to cut the extra ball, make sure I don't misrepresent anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, uh, one reason we wanted to to bring you on is that uh, so our show we talk about the scary and the weird and we laugh about it and we cover stuff from shadow people and lizard people to uh recently we we had a really fun adventure with this crazy theory that the uh ark of the covenant is secretly a uh high-tech death laser that was a fun one to talk about yes which is funny because <laughs> the only thing that it actually gives anyone in the bible is hemorrhoids <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I always find that to be so strange that like people theorize all kinds of things about it but literally the only thing that it but you know it does kill some people when they touch it but yeah. other than that it just gives like the philistines hemorrhoids so i just love the fact that it's, uh <laughs> that it, it can either strike you dead indiana jones style or you know make you butt hurt it's like one of the it's a, you know it's a very it's a, it's a very funny kind of divine wrath you know right so, uh, so, so, whereas uh, we treat these topics typically very lighthearted and we laugh a lot about a lot of stuff, um, I, the reality is also that, uh, especially some of the conspiracy theories we touch on, there are people out there who who take some of these topics uh, really way too seriously and to a dangerous extent sometimes. And so I think, especially for shows uh, like ours, we have some responsibility there to also touch on uh, countering some of the misinformation out there on that kind of stuff. And that there is no better resource than esoterica for for that kind of information in my opinion i appreciate that and all the more reason we wanted to 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 bring you on 
Yeah, I just tell people with conspiracy theories, like it's it's one thing to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's another thing to think you're an elf. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Very different. <laughs> yeah, those are different orders of magnitude. Uh, yeah, I, I love this stuff as much as the next guy. I mean, I'm surrounded literally by it all day, every day. It's my job, my life, sort of what I do. And um, you know, I literally have a book on the Inquisition just sitting here that I'm like reading casually for an episode this week. <laughs> you know, because you know cheery way of spending a sunday um right but yeah it's uh the conspiracy theory stuff and that's part of the reason why i covered the witch trials and the inquisition is because you know uh people want to know sort of what happens when conspiracy theories go from like 4chan to government the, you know the government believes in them well the inquisition is it that's like if you want to see what it looks like in history the inquisition and the witch trials are really what that looks like and uh yeah it's sort of all fun and games until the Inquisition. Yeah. Everybody's having fun until the Inquisition. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody yeah, expects uh, this, this, the Inquisition. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's uh uh but yeah, it's uh yeah, it's that's the kind of thing that's part of the reason why I covered the topics that I do on the channel, at least when it comes to the Inquisition and the wish trials, is uh you know, their history, if we let it, uh, is a, a great cautionary tale. Indeed, uh, human, human beings aren't always good at that, but uh, when we allow history to be a cautionary tale, it's a pretty good cautionary tale. A lot of Indeed. stuff we shouldn't do again. Well, um, I, I guess to start off is is with a with the topic of Western esotericism itself. So, um, so so you've defined Western esotericism as the the hidden inner dimension of religion, spirit, spirituality, and philosophy. And uh, it's a the whole field covers kind of like the smorgasbord of everything we talk about on our show. So, you know, you cover magic, alchemy, secret societies, the whole shebang, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, for me personally, it's it's been really my jam learning about because of uh, I, I love how this field is interdisciplinary, right? So it's covering, you know, so you got your science, your history, religion, all this kind of colliding together for to to make this this larger field, and I love that. So. Um, uh, the first question I wanted to throw at you is, you know, you, you've explained that Western esotericism is a relatively new field, right? Is uh, introduced in the nineties. Um, yeah. Why do you think a field that's this rich and untapped took so long to become a part of academia? I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, in fact, Vata Hanegraaff, who really is one of the great uh, luminaries in the field, actually argues that. Western esotericism is actually just everything that got rejected as knowledge. First, it was rejected knowledge. So alchemy, astrology, witchcraft, all that stuff became the dustbin of history. And so uh, it's precisely its rejection that made it what it is. And therefore, uh, it's it, it, it ipso facto was not studied. And that's that's kind of why. So I think that, that he's not wrong about that. That's certainly what big piece of it. I think the other piece of it is that um, academics like respectability. That's a big thing academics like. And when you tell someone you study magic, they might be like, what? Like, why are you studying something we know is real? Or, you know, why why are you studying something that's dangerous or even satanic? Um, so there's a, a long history of not studying this stuff because it's associated with evil or, or lack of respectability in some sense, intellectual lack of respectability or religious lack of, lack of respectability. So that's another component of it. The other component of it is religion in general is a relatively new field. We're talking about religious studies being a hundred-year-old field, just religious studies. The idea that you could study religion from a secular point of view or from an academic point of view is 
pretty shocking. I mean, it, it's it's not really much older than the atomic theory. If you kind of want a, a sense of, you know, religious studies was just coming on board when quantum mechanics was being developed. So it's really new as a, as a field, academic field. So, and also it's still the case that there are very few uh, religious studies departments. For instance, the big university where I teach at, Wayne State here in Detroit, in the Midwest is one of the most religiously diverse places in the country. We have the largest Arab population outside of the Middle East, massive population of various religions. Uh, there's no religious studies department at my university, just at all. And so you, you, you're in a situation where uh, we're just a paucity of religious studies departments. And if there's not a religious studies department, well, you're not going to be studying esoteric religion. Um, you know, it's just like a, there's a logical, you know, kind of a problem there. So I think those are a couple of reasons. Um, I think another reason is that this material just uh, after the Enlightenment, after the 18th century, where people got enlightened, allegedly, all of this stuff, as Walter uh, Hanegraaff pointed out, was rejected. And what ended up happening is, what do you do with a 800-page manual of magic? If you don't think it's real, which, of course, many people don't, is it worth translating? Is it worth working on? Is it worth doing that when there are other things to be working on? Or, And so this stuff just kind of gets rejected and it kind of lays in the dustbin of history. Uh, I just mentioned the Inquisition, but I'm working on this episode of Inquisition. Um, the two largest inquisitorial manuals, uh, one of them is a, a roughly 800 pages long by Nicholas Emmerich. It's no, there's no modern edition of it. Oh, wow, it's, really? Oh, no, there's no modern edition. I mean, the if you want a copy of it, which I have a copy, you have to get a copy from the 16th century. Uh, wow. That is your only option. Um, uh, the other one, the other major inquisit inquisitorial manual published by Bernard Guy in the uh, in the 14th century, the last time it was published was the 19th century. I have alchemy books here that are that have no modern editions. So it's just sometimes just getting access to this material is incredibly difficult. I have books on my shelf that if I want a copy of, either I have to download a PDF of them scanned in from some library like the Vatican Library, or I just have to buy a copy from from the 1600s uh, or the 1500s. And so you're talking about, this is not like, you're not, you know, you're not one click shopping at Amazon to get access to this mm -hmm. material. And some of the material that I've made episodes on on Esoterica, I've had to translate the material. It just doesn't exist in a modern edition. There's certainly not a translation. So if you want it, you need to learn to read Latin. You need to, you know, uh, get an access to an early edition. But that's, these are some of the reasons. And there's a heap more, but these are some of the major reasons. Wow. And I'll, I'll say, just the magic, I'll give one more example. In magic, yeah. for instance, um, there are about 150 known manuscripts of a magical book, the most important magical book in Western magic called the Key of Solomon. Um, of those 150, about five have been published. So we don't even know what's in that other 145. There's some theories. People have seen them. They've leafed through them, but they're they're not, they're not on the agenda to be published. They're not on the agenda to be translated, and there's no one on the agenda working on making a critical edition of this magical manuscript tradition. It's the most important magical tradition in the West, and literally, it's an iceberg. You're talking about yeah, uh, one percent of the manuscripts have been have been published and uh, translated, and even the one that has been published and translated was translated uh, in the nineteenth uh, late nineteenth century from very defective French manuscript. So um, most people who've read it have read it from a French translation from Latin, from that French translation in English, and that manuscript yeah. in the Bibliothèque Arsenal is bad. It's a, we, it's a known defective mm -hmm. manuscript. So that's the kind of thing that we 
the field faces. It's a it's a mountain of work to be done, and there are fifty people in the world working on it. Wild. It's it's tragic that something that's been uh, inevitably so influential to humanity and society to this day is in in the dusty back corner of history's closet for the mm-hmm. moment, right? Yeah, it's amazing. I have just on my, I can reach in and grab it if you want. I have a, um, at auction, I was bought recently a, a little uh, 17th, uh, 18th century book on conjuring demons. That's manuscript. Oh, cool. uh, wow. Yeah, so I, I, I have it. Uh, I can grab it if you. Sure. Hold on, I can grab yeah. it. It doesn't look like a big, you know, monstrous Harry Potter book, but many of them don't actually. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is a, this is the kind of thing we would be working with just, you know, literally I bought this at an auction. Uh, I don't think the auctioneer even knew what they had, frankly. Um, it's 18th wow. century, so 1700s. But um, it's all kind of washed oh, out. so cool. But uh, you wouldn't know what it is. It just looks like a book of prayers until you get to the very end of the book, uh, which is where the titles typically for books uh, were actually written in, in the manuscripts. But uh probably can't see it because it's all washed out because of the lighting there. Maybe that covers it up. It says, yeah, uh, Finis Librum Condentiorum Diaboli. The, here ends the book for the conjuration of, uh, of demons, of the devils. Wow. So it looks like a book of prayers, but if somebody didn't know. <laughs> it, is, it is a book of prayers. And it, it, it is, it is a, it is a many, many books of, of summoning demons are books <laughs> of prayers, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really beautiful uh, 18th century uh, book for conjuring demons. I need wow. one word. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, uh, I know my own Episcopal book of common prayer doesn't have anything about so many demons. No, <laughs> no, typically, but it may have an exorcism in there. And in, in, uh, one of the things that I, I talk about on the channel a lot is a lot of people don't know that the very people that were conjuring demons uh, by night were, were doing exorcisms by day. It was the exact same group of <laughs> oh. people. Sometimes we now refer to as a clerical necromantic underground. But um, because that's the only people that could have been doing it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good good, good band name. Um, (laughs) But this is just an example. We don't know how many there are out there of these. There there are probably hundreds of these little manuals of magic that are just sitting in a shelf, you know, because they don't look all that extraordinary. Because you're not going to like bind it in flesh and put, you know, have a hundred demons in the front of it so you can get an eye on it yeah you know something it's not they're not typically books don't look like that that's good for like evil dead movies but it's not so great for like actual real life and um you know also you're not going to put like how to conjure demons in the front of your book that you're carrying around because you know the inquisition (laughs) yeah have you heard of oh i'm sorry no go ahead please i mean i'm sure you've heard of it but the voynich manuscript yeah do you know much about it yeah, oh, you, you know, did. Okay, I'm gonna have to find that up. Yeah, I've done time. an episode about it. I worked actually on the European Voynich manuscript transcription project back when I was in my late teens. Um, oh my this is gosh! When we were when the it was the first major attempt to to render the uh, Voynich into a machine readable um, uh, text. So mm-hmm. I worked on that team. I have some really cringy old Usenet uh, posts <laughs> that I've I've managed to find that hope no one else finds. Um, but yeah, I've, I've done some work on, I've done a lot of work on the warning transcripts. In fact, I have my copy, uh, that I got for my birthday when I was 16, 17, something like that, that, uh, I, I had my parents get for me from Yale back when it was, you just still had to request it. And, uh, and yeah. photostats, you couldn't, you couldn't get color pictures. So it was all photostats. 
So I have my photostat copy that's all marked up. But yeah, I have the work on the warning to lot. That's incredible. What do you think? What do you think it is? I think it's a medieval hoax. I think that they're... <laughs> I think that there are very good uh, statistical, the, the best uh, analysis that I've seen of the text uh, from from, uh, from a statistical analysis shows uh, pretty clearly that it has anomalies that are that are that betray the possibility of it being a, a cipher text or having an underlying natural language. So I think it was a medieval a medieval hoax, and I think that uh, it was produced by a team of four or five uh, four or five scribes. We can identify mm -hmm. those scribes pretty well. And uh, I think it was produced in a few months and then sold and it ended up uh, sold in Italy and then eventually made its way to, to, to the Holy Roman Empire and it was sold to Rudolf II. And we know there it made, uh, uh, when it was sold into the, into, to Rudolf II, it, it, it made a pretty penny. I forget exactly 100 ducats or some crazy amount, but I think it was a medieval hoax. What epic tricksters. Right? <laughs> hey, you know, um, there's, it was, it's not the first time there's something like that happening. Um, I mean, there's always going to be people like that out there, you know, uh, art art forgers okay. and people like that. Oh yeah. But, um, but yeah, I've, I've worked on it for years, and trust me, I I don't want it to be a hoax. I want it to be <laughs> medieval Dungeons and Dragons manual or something. I want it to be, you know, anything right. other than. But uh, you know, it's it's linguistics and cryptography, whether we like it or not, are mathematical sciences at this point. They're not, you know, mm -hmm. it's not you guessing at the cryptoquip and the you know, in the back of the newspaper, it really are mathematical sciences and the math doesn't lie. But that's not to say that codes can't be cracked, that, you know, really sophisticated codes can be cracked. People forget that just last year, I think, the uh, the 340 cipher from the Zodiac Killer was finally cracked. So I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very recent. So no, no one had read that in, in, since the Zodiac enciphered it. And uh, I remember when that crew uh, folks cracked it, uh, many people thought it was, it, it was incrackable or whatever, but, you know, couple good hunches led them down the path to, to opening it up and now we can read uh we got a glimpse into the the very disturbing mind of the zodiac killer after whatever 40 years of him of him uh, mm -hmm. reaching out so codes can get cracked and there are cipher manuscripts that, are, that come up all the time and uh, the one thing i tell people is that one thing that every cipher manuscript that we've discovered since the 1450s shares in common is that we've cracked them all and we've cracked them all really fast uh, yeah. And in the in the in the Warnich has has uh, resisted that, and I think it's resisted that because there's no underlying, uh, no underlying natural language, and there's no there's no actual ciphering, um, there's no or the, yeah there's no ciphering thing, it's uh, quasi stochastic is what cryptographers say, which means well... kind of random. <laughs> <laughs> well, epic hoax. It's really cool that you got to actually that you actually did some work on that. So yeah. that's that's pretty amazing. I didn't do yeah. anything that cool in my teens. Oh, <laughs> no. yeah. This is the kind of I mean, this is stuff that like I was you know when I was seventeen, eighteen, sitting you know waiting up late, sitting up late at night listening to Nine Channels, like trying to crack the Warnish manuscript. That's amazing. Um, that's wild. Yeah, yeah, I was, was writing uh, angsty poetry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I was probably doing, I was definitely doing that too. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I was just listening to angsty poetry. It's all nineteen hundred. Um, but well, what got you into this field? Oh, if I can piggyback onto that question, because yeah, I know you've been asked it. that a million times. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, sure. The reason the reason I wanted to to hear your answer too is because one, I know your answer overlaps with a lot of the like the same reasons we do this show. But mm -hmm. I was also I also really love how Edgar Allan Poe was fed into it. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe. It's funny because it's this the circle continues to tighten on this whole uh, Inquisition business. 
that um, the, the one of the books that Poe mentions, uh, uh, the Directorium Inquisitorum, is going to be the topic of the episode this week. So, oh, cool. Yeah, it's, so that book uh, or that list of books in the in the Fall of House of Usher really like grabbed my imagination. And I was like, I got to find what these books are. They're so weird. And um, but yeah, so the the short answer is that um, I think like a lot of people, like I'm in my early 40s. I grew up on a lot of shows like Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World and In Search of with Litter Nimoy or like Unsolved Mysteries with like Robert Stack walking out of the fog and his like trench coat. And I still I still watch Unsolved Mysteries because they have all good... the, they have all the episodes on YouTube and they have tons of Litter Nimoy's In Search of. And yeah. I'll have days where it's like if it's raining or I can't do anything or I'm sick. That's that's my go to. It's such a comfort food show and like those cool scents from like the 70s. Are, like, <laughs> it's just like weird. It's so great. And um, and so I grew up on a lot of that stuff as a kid. And, um, you know, I like to read, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons. I was sort of like, you know, it was a nerdy kid. You know, I was on BBSs and stuff. I was like that. And um, and I think what ended up happening is that I think there are kind of two directions that you can go in some ways is that as you get older, you can become skeptical of that stuff and just be like, no, there's no book foot. There's no UFOs. There's no ghosts. There's no whatever Oak Island treasure. Um, and you just kind of dump it all out and you, you know, you, you cease to be Peter Pan and you grow up or whatever. And then the, the other path is like you become cr- credulous and you, you sort of, you know, kind of some people really true believers in all of it you know very rarely do you meet a, pe- a person who's just like i just believe in atlantis that's like my thing right. it's always like atlantis <laughs> plus 50 other things yeah um uh, sometimes i refer to this as like conspiracy comorbidity um yeah. <laughs> but um but what i think what happened to me is that i never lost interest in that stuff but i did become skeptical and i did it, it, this question i was like look all right if there are ghosts let's just you know because people are seeing something like there's people aren't lying, so like let's let's start to think about what are the metaphysical implications of this. Um, you know what are the what are the historical implications? What are the religious implications? Whatever. And I, I became more and more interested in this. And what ends up happening, I think, eventually, is that well, if you want to go to a place that thinks seriously about these topics with some degree of rigor, well, the academy is it. That's kind of it. And I never lost interest in this material, whether it's the Voyage manuscript or John D or necromancy or you know uh i feel like i'm like a, again like you like roll a dice and see what size it lands on oh it's necromancy week um but i never lost interest in the, in this stuff and um i was ending i was finishing up my undergraduate degree um uh, in religious studies and philosophy i double majored and um there was just a part of me that was like tugged at uh by every time i'd walk past you know the you know that part of the bookshelf yeah. And I could just sort of hear him like, hey, Sledge, like, you got to do your due diligence, brother. And, you know, and I knew there was this program in Amsterdam that was just like, that's all it did. It was just studying hermetic uh, philosophy and you could just get knee deep and all because the Ritman Library is there, which is the largest collection uh, of hermetic and occult uh, literature in the world. And it was like, all right, I'm just going to roll the dice and apply. And I applied and I got in and I got a pretty decent scholarship. And I was like, all right, I'm going to Amsterdam. And so, um, you know, and so I went to Amsterdam and, and you know, at some level thought I kind of worked it out of my system and went back to Memphis and did a PhD in normie philosophy, as much as philosophy is normie. Um, and then over the course, I was like, I kept coming back to the material. And ultimately, I was like, all right, this is what I need to do. I, I, my intellectual curiosity is uh, not exhausted. And so I need to just 
double down on this. And of course, um, you can do that, but you can do that in poverty or you can try to find a job. I, I tried to find a job doing this. And as you can imagine, the, the doors are all wide open. Everyone's offering you a job and esotericism in all the places. And that, of course, that's absolutely <laughs> not true in any in any uh, in any world. And uh, my brother, uh, you know, thank my brother, Jonathan. Um, my brother, Jonathan, was like, hey, man, you're watching academic YouTube. You're watching Jackson Crawford talk about Old Norse. You're watching, you know, SciShow. You're watching all this other academic YouTube. You need to get in it and do this. And yeah. uh, of course, he he was right, and that's uh, that's sort of how where where esoterica came from. Yes, and I, and I think as a result, you're providing a much needed, you know, just public education service to to the rest of us who have no access to that. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and I'm really I feel really a lot of gratitude and a lot of I feel really blessed to be able to, you know, when an educator gets to do their thing, gets to be an educator, yeah. and gets to make a living wage at it. That's all we want we're not looking to be billionaires. We're not trying to like, you know, have golden thrones. We just like want to teach and we want to teach and we want a respectable wage for our job and we want to mm -hmm. you know, live comfortably enough. And <clears throat> I feel just super blessed to be able to, to, yeah, to reach out and, you know, whether people like it or not, YouTube is the, the second largest search engine in the world. And for people below the yeah. age of 25, it's the largest. And yeah. if, uh, and if, if academics like myself aren't, putting information out onto that search engine. Well, crazy people are. And, exactly. <laughs> and so uh, it's it's sort of also, I feel like it's sort of a moral intellectual responsibility to, to, to put good information out there. Although I will say that we're in such the infancy of this field that, uh, that maybe in 10 years, most of what I'm doing will be outdated. There'll be a whole new, a whole new crop of people like me, hopefully coming through that will greatly improve upon and, uh, my work so but yeah it's it's a lot of fun and uh it's a great great job as far as jobs go awesome. i like how you put the uh how they you know it'll get you know hijacked by crazy people or you know in that sense because it's like i ran into a, somebody a while back and they got into a discussion with me on certain things and they threw i remember they threw a line at me which was uh believe only half of what you see and nothing that you hear and i kind of stood back and went do, do you know who said that they were like, well, no. Poe said that. Do mm. you know what it was about? He's like, no. Okay. It's a short story about people in an insane asylum. <laughs> it's like, you're using this quote to make your point, and you have no clue where it came from or the context in which it was said. So I like yeah. how you put that. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's true. Uh, and again, go back to Poe. There's also things like reading the Fall of the House of Usher in uh, middle school. Uh, that story still had a huge impact on me. Still does. I'll, I'll reread it every year. Uh, the allure of weird old books. Hmm? Telltale tell tell for me. Yeah, yeah. That's a great I read that. Well. I read. I read that in tenth grade English lit class, and I, I think I read it four times, and I'm just like, you know. So that, that was kind of why I got it. I, I, I always, I was always fascinated by Poe and the Macabre. So. Yeah, I, it's the same way. Um, that was the um, huge, huge influence, and then also finding H.P. Lovecraft and stuff like that. Um. Yeah, love the, the even the lore of old evil books. Just watching, sitting up late at night, watching Evil Dead on VHS. Yes, and, uh, that's what we did. Yeah, and just like I, sitting up late watching this and being like, "Is it really a Necronomicon?" Yeah, and the rabbit, <laughs> and the rabbit hole that that was. You know, and it's funny looking back on that. Uh, whatever that, you know, ten year old self or whoever, whatever age I was, I should be watching that stuff. Um, 
it was funny because I got to hang out with Bruce Campbell and, and Ted Ramey a few a uh, couple years ago, and uh, oh wow, and, and we I got a great picture of he and I both looking at a copy of Agrippa's uh, Three Books of Occult Philosophy uh, printed in 1600, and uh, sort of funny to be you know sitting across the table with this this guy was in a movie who you know now I'm like literally in, in ownership of books for conjuring demons from the 1700s, yeah. so <laughs> the, the circle is complete. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if I can, if I can ask you about, uh, admittedly a rather broad topic, um, and I don't, maybe too too broad to, to ask for a, a short version on, but nonetheless, I'm tempted. Um, what could you tell the uninitiated among our listeners, which I imagine is most of us, um, just maybe a cliff notes about what Jewish Jew, Jewish mysticism is. Maybe as a sort of just to entice interest. The reason I ask, and I imagine is true for many listeners, uh, the idea until recently was completely foreign to me, which is tragic, because uh, I I grew up you know Southern conservative conservative fundamentalist Christian, so of course the, the idea that like any sort of mysticism among Jews or Christians, Judaism, Christianity, or whatever is completely antithetical, right? So. I feel like I'm learning way too late in life that there's this whole rich world of mysticism. So, so anyway, all that to say is like, uh, what, what would you throw out there to entice people to explore the topic of, of Jewish mysticism specifically? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's, there's a, so the, there's several different kinds of, of Jewish mysticism. Um, one called Merkava mysticism, which was a, a form of ritual practice whereby people, um, descended rather than ascended which is weird they descend descend to the palaces of the divine and they have to avoid a bunch of really mean angels and the jewish tradition angels are not our friends angels don't like us in fact angels argued with god that we should never have been created um and probably right um and so you have to you have to pass through these angels with passcodes and weird names and then you eventually get to gaze upon the throne of god in some rare cases sit upon the throne of god and be transformed into an angel um, or some other fiery being. So that's a neat form of a very ancient Jewish mysticism. It seems like Paul practiced this form of mysticism. There's a, a line in Second Corinthians where he uh, yeah, yeah, talks yeah. about being, being caught up to the third heaven. That's uh, probably a reference to him engaging in this form of mysticism. That's a controversial claim, but I'll die on that hill. I don't care. Um, <laughs> um, there's another form of mysticism called the uh, Sefer Yetzirah, which is a form of the book of formation where you use uh, combinations of Hebrew letters to re recreate things the way that God did. Allegedly, the book tells you how God formed the universe. And if you've ever heard of golems, uh, artificial human beings created out of clay, mm -hmm. uh, the golem is created using techniques from the Sefer Yetzirah. So that's another form of, of mysticism. The other most famous of now these days, at least, is the uh, Kabbalah. And yes. the Kabbalah is a form of mysticism where you read the Bible in very obscure and, and strange ways, and you contemplate the body of God, which are a series of 10 emanations or 10 um, flowings out of the divine. And um, uh, you learn basically the, how the metaphysics of the universe work through studying scripture, uh, although through a very uh, esoteric lens. And you learn basically that uh, that all of all all things are are aspects of the, the divine various kinds of configurations so it's a very heady very weird form of, of mysticism as much as any of them are normal but um so these are sort of the big three uh there's also jewish magic which has a long history 
um, very ancient, going back at least to to the Roman times. And so, so those are you know, so Merkava mysticism, say for Yetzirah mysticism, and uh, Kabbalah. Um, and uh, it's a huge amount of literature. I mean, um, the the principal book of the Kabbalah is a book called the Sefer Zohar on my shelf. There, there, three big three volume <laughs> book, um, but in, written in a very weird dialect of Aramaic. It's difficult uh, to describe. Actually, it's like a completely artificial language. I mean, it's like kind of Tolkieny. It's sort of like a made up language that they wrote this mystical text in. Um, not quite totally made up, but made up enough that you would have to you have to study just that version of the language to make sense of it. It's very weird. I would I'd absolutely recommend our listeners to check out your esoterica playlist because you've got a whole in-depth series of videos on, on mysticism and Kabbalah and the, yeah. the whole gambit is amazing. Yeah, I have a, basically a college level class. It's a 14, 14 part lecture series on, on the Kabbalah so you can really go whole hog as much as that's a kosher <laughs> metaphor. Um, <laughs> that, that, it works for us. Into, Dive into, hey, hey, yeah, for sure. Uh, you can dive into the Kabbalah. You have a 14-part series. It's basically a college course on, on the Kabbalah. Folks are interested in that material. So so it, it, it's part of that topic. Uh, some, something I've been learning from your videos I've been fascinated with. Uh, whereas a lot of modern folks, especially in the Christian conservative land that, that I'm from, you know, we we tend we've grown up seeing the Bible as just wholesale. Uh, anti-magic, do not pass code, and I collect $200, right? And yet, uh, some of what I've been learning from from your videos, especially like a, you know, a re reading the a careful reading of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, is like the truth is a lot more nuanced depending on, mm -hmm. on how you read it, right? So could you tell us just a little bit, and of course, I'm, again, I'm going to say like, go watch your videos for the full details, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, <laughs> if you could tell us a little bit of a teaser, about how uh, Hebrew scriptures address forbidden and allowed magic, and and also the Talmud, because some of what you talk about is just amazing. Yeah, but the, the discussions in the Talmud are so fascinating. Um, so the Bible is weird in that it doesn't just say don't do magic. It, it always says don't do particular types of magic, and so it bans. Um, it says, and it also, it, it, what the ban is, the ban on being a person who does it. So it says, don't be a menechesh, and don't be a, a, a nachash, or don't be a ma'onim. And these are technical terms in Hebrew that, frankly, we don't know the name. We don't know what they mean. Uh, there's a lot of debate about what they mean. Like, for instance, when it says, don't be a ma'onim, we, we know that the, the root there is anan, which means cloud, and ma means one who does something. So it means cloud doer. Well, that's not any clearer. Right. Um, you know, menachash. Well, we know the word there is nachash, which means snake. And we know that the meh means like doer. But what a snake doer? Like, so uh, don't be a Baal ove, master of the ove. We don't know what an ove is or the yidaoni. Don't be a yidaoni. We don't know what a yidaoni is. So what ends up happening is that uh, if you look at Bible translations, this is a great place where you can compare Bible translations because every, every Bible is going to translate these so differently. They're going to say, don't be a fortune teller and don't be a soothsayer. What's mm -hmm. the difference between that? Right. Um, and frankly, there's not even, the, the word doesn't even mean that in Hebrew, literally. So, um, and, it, and and then there's other words for various kinds of magic workers. And you can see all kinds of uh, fun translations with this. For instance, when the Bible is translated from Hebrew into Greek, 
um, the, um, it translates the word for sorcerer, sorceress. Uh, don't let a sorceress live. Don't let a witch live. Suffer not a witch to live, famously. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That word, um, which we do have a good sense of what that word means, actually. Um, uh, when Greek, they translated it to pharmakus, which means something like poisoner. And so um, it's it's because they didn't weren't quite sure what to do with this word. In fact, one of the one of those words for uh, for a uh, diviner, they actually translated as belly talker, ventriloquist uh, in Greek because they didn't know what the hell the word. I was hoping you'd bring that ventriloquist. up. Ventriloquist. <laughs> yeah, belly talker is literally what it is in, in Greek, and it's it's a ventriloquist. So you know, the Yedoni I think is translated as a ventriloquist. So they didn't know what these words meant either. And the, the, the meaning of these technical words for magic were, 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 were lost really early on. And the Bible allows for certain kinds of divination. For instance, it allows for you to use this weird thing called the Urim Vatumim, these pieces of the high priest's breastplate that, I don't know, I would imagine being some kind of magical light bright that you know, has these 12 jewels in it. And if you ask it a question, it they light up and tell you the answer. Um, you can do that. Um, so it doesn't, you're allowed to, to ask about the future, but you just have to do it in very circumspect and circumspect means. And then there's a famous case of the, uh, the Baalat Ov, uh, the witch at Endor, um, which, which is a terrible translation. The word is yeah. Baalat Ov, it just means mistress of the Ov. We just don't know what an Ov is. It might be related to the word for ancestors through the word Av in Hebrew, which means father, but we don't know. Um, at any rate, what ends up happening is that um, people end up trying to figure out what all this means. And the Bible doesn't say don't do magic, period. It says don't do these particular things. And those are all death penalty cases in the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that if you're caught doing them, you could be subject to the death penalty. In fact, the Baalat Ov, when Saint, when uh, Saul comes to her, says, I'm not doing it because I can be subject to the death penalty. I'm not doing that. And he convinced her, I'm the king. You have to do what I say. And so she does. She has a very, a very positive representation in that story, by the way, which is very unlike a witch you would think of. She's, she's, very gracious and very hospitable when she gives them food afterwards. And uh, she's nothing like a witch you would imagine yeah. from, from folklore or whatever. Um, but at any rate, what ends up happening, at least in the Jewish tradition, is that the rabbis did debate, which that's what all rabbis do. They argue about stuff. And they are, they're arguing about what all these different forms of, of um, sorcery, kishuf, are, because they're all death penalty situations. So they have to figure out what they are, because if you do them, mm -hmm. they have to put you to death for doing them. Well, they sort out what they are, and the, the ruling goes, well, you're not allowed to do those seven things or whatever. It's maybe more than that, but you can't do those things, but you can do other stuff. And so what can you do? Well, you can create people. You can create cows. You can take dust and use magical powers, for lack of a better word, and you can create cloud, uh, create cows. And there's a story in the Talmud where these two rabbis create a cow, and then they create a, a human being. And they like send this golem human being to another rabbi, and the other rabbi is like, "Aha! I know you, you, uh, you're, you're, you, you came from these, uh, like, like I know that you, you're, my friends made you." They're like pranking wow. each other with artificial people. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> it, it's just, a, it's, a, it's such a bizarre, and it's just buried in the Talmud. You would never. It's not like it's set off by like, "Oh, this is a hilarious story. Let me tell you this." It's just like, this is a thing that happened. Now, I don't know if it really happened or not, but, um. So what ends up happening is that, interestingly enough, in the Jewish tradition, at least, magic, uh, broadly speaking, is a, is a lot more tolerated. And there's a, a pretty long tradition of Jewish magic, whereas in the Christian tradition, there's much more of a, a clear blanket condemnation of it. Um, but even then, 
um, you know, it's it, it's there's a long history of in in the in the Christian world about how exactly magic is banned and what aspects of it are banned and what can you do and what can you not do. Uh, for instance, like, can you summon a demon? Well, you probably shouldn't summon a demon. But if you do summon a demon, as long as you don't worship the demon, then you're not guilty of heresy and can't be subject to the death penalty. You'll just be subject to penances. And it's only in the in the in the 14th century where uh, summoning demons becomes hereditated, and then at that point you can become you can subject to heresy accusations and be subject to the death penalty. So even in Christianity, it's sort of a long windup. And if we want proof for this, the greatest proof is in 1398, the uh, University of Paris had to issue a 28 point condemnation of, of of sorcery because so many students and faculty were practicing sorcery that they had to issue this like 28 point don't do this and don't do that you can't do this for sure and well you don't you don't uh you don't pass condemnations of things that people aren't doing and right. we can and um, we can tell that you know i, I was drawing a drive to new orleans there's a great sign on lake pontchartrain that says do not jump off bridge well, they didn't put that sign there until someone jumped off the damn bridge. Right. And you don't issue a 28-point combination of sorcery if half the university is not up to doing it. And, of course, the University of Paris is training priests. Like, there's nothing else to do there. You're learning theology and stuff. And so, um, and so, yeah, it was endemic. It was endemic in the, in the, in the Christian world. It was uh, certainly practiced in the Jewish world, certainly practiced in the Muslim world as well. One of the most famous occult books of all times, the Shams Amarif. It's a, the uh, Son of Knowledge, which is an Islamic book of magic. So everybody got up to this. And the, and, and the simple reason why, I think, is that, look, if we all prayed to God and God cured our diseases and fixed our kids and stopped all the bad things from happening, well, that'd be the long and short of it. People would just pray and God would do what God said was going to do, and you, that would be it. Well, we pray and God doesn't pick the phone up. So we call right. someone else. And who do we call? Well, anyone will pick the damn phone up. Uh, <laughs> whether that be, you know, demons or angels or, or magic or astrology or whatever. So um, when religion, uh, you know, when, I don't know, God gives you lemons. Find a new God. <laughs> I, I really loved and appreciated how you, uh, you know, really went into some details on both the, the uh, the Witch of Endor story and the uh, uh, Simon the Magus, right? Um, especially for me, you know, those those two particular stories are very, very quickly glazed over in, in, in the world I, I came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I loved hearing about, you know, you, you've talked about that a, how a Hebrew reading of The Witch of Endor is, is a lot more tragic of a story. And then uh, I... I really loved and nerded out on you're talking about how uh believing some of the apocrypha like you know, it's, a, it's a very short mention of right the simon the sorcerer story when the apocrypha mm-hmm. we have this epic like magical air battle oh yeah the battle in the air yeah yeah uh, definitely needs to be definitely needs to be a movie of that one um, yes. yeah yeah the, they are, they fight in the air and he's cast down you know, there's also another magus that's mentioned in the in the book of acts that no one ever talks about he's just mentioned for a, um, just a brief minute but basically, he sort of uh, gets in the way of them dealing with a governor or something. So there's like at, at least uh, at least uh, what five Magoi mentioned in, in the New Testament, uh, the, the three in the Gospel of, of Luke, and um, um, there right now three in the Gospel of Matthew, and in uh, the two in the Book of Acts. That's cool. 
So, so speaking of scripture and magic, um, question I've been dying to ask. We recently interviewed a, a modern practicing witch doctor and uh, was learning all about kind of his world and how he operates. And uh, he he brought up something fascinating to me. It's just been lingering in my brain ever since. And uh, kind of from his point of view, he was explaining, you know, the rather controversial idea that um, uh, the the Bible in his framework can be used as black magic. And the way that he framed it was that, um, like, anytime you use scripture, you know, from from any you know re- religious framework, but anytime you use scripture, uh, not to form or educate or enlighten, but to manipulate and control to bid another's will to your own via use of that scripture, that that in itself is is a is a form of black magic. And I was wondering if you've run into a- any similar sorts of claims or ideas in, in your study of antiquity. Nothing exactly like nothing exactly like that. I mean, certainly people use the the Bible for magical ends, using certain psalms yeah. uh, mm-hmm. for certain yeah. kinds of magical properties. Psalm ninety one, for instance, is pretty famous as like a warding psalm against demons. It's been used since the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but nothing in terms of using the Bible to manipulate people. I mean, the you know there was no sense. I mean, prior to the modern period, most people thought that what they were doing was simply preaching to people to do the simple word of God. And there was no sense they were manipulating people. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, you don't get the sense. And even reading these inquisitors, you never get the sense that they're winking and nodding. They really do believe this. It's not like they're, they're just saying, look, there's heresy. Heresy is going to damn people. And I don't want people to be damned. And I'd far rather, you know, it's a ticking time bomb. Same with like, would you torture a terrorist if they had ticking time bomb? Well, most people would say, well, I guess, you know, whatever. Um, well, the, all they say with the Inquisition is like, yeah, it's a time bomb. We're dealing with the devil, the worst terrorist imaginable. He's destroying people's souls. And we have to get these ter- get these metaphysical terrorists, i.e. heretics, under control. And if it means torturing some people, it's going to mean torturing some people. And they don't take any great love in it, and they don't like it, and they, they complain about it in their books and stuff. I believe them. I don't think they're being falsely loving. But you don't get the sense in pre-modern people that using the Bible for nefarious ends um, is sort of some is something that people are up to. Now, of course, they always accuse their enemies of doing that. You know, right. they're, they're twisting the so-called Gnostics are twisting the scripture to do what they want or the Cathars or, or whatever. So it's always the other team is up to no good doing bad stuff with my book. But um, it's never thought of as magical. It's just thought of as like, you know, reading the Bible wrong. Um, because again, the, the church at least thought, and for good reason, I suppose, that they had the authority, the Catholic Church had the authority uh, because Christ had given the keys of heaven and earth to Peter and his descendants, and therefore they had a, a, a apostolic succession, and that gave them, that vouchsafed them uh, such that God would lead righteously lead them, and if they read scripture, and he would, God revealed them, blah, blah, blah. So they, that, they believed it. And, you know, when I read them, um, it's so easy to look back on all that stuff and think, oh, they were just manipulating things to confiscate people's property. Um, but, you know, the, for instance, Inquisition, when they confiscated your property, they turned it into a trash. It's not like they confiscated it and turned it into a lucrative business. Right. In fact, people complained about it. They were like, the Inquisition was like, please don't confiscate their property because, like, it, it drives our property value down when you make a trash heap in the middle of Paris because there's just one heretic on my street. Um, 
and so it's a funny the way that we tell history and the way the history actually happens is often very very at odds and um but yeah i don't get a sense that uh, that people thought of the bible being manipulated in that way it was magical or black magical or something like that um not so much that yeah. very like postmodern kind of uh, that's kind of classic. Sure. Is like I, I could definitely see it in a, in a modern framework where that's, you know, leverage now to make a buck, and, yeah. and get the six private jet for the preacher, right? So <laughs> no, right, this prosperity, the, the prosperity gospel and stuff like that. This is the yeah. intersection of yeah. uh, of not just power and religion, but capitalism and religion. Man, yes. that's a hell of a trifecta if there ever was one. Um, <laughs> but truth of the matter is, the Catholic Church really wasn't that concerned about getting more wealthy in some ways. I mean, they were the largest landowners in Europe. I mean, they had. They had a ton of money. And frankly, a bunch of poor heretics that the confiscating property from after the Albigensian Crusades are over and all the rich heretics are basically done for and the, you know, the after the the Albigensian War and the 50-year Inquisition that followed, I mean, the main heresy that that the church hunted down was not magic. It was not devil worship. It wasn't witchcraft. The main heresy that worried the Catholic Church more than any other heresy was apostolic poverty. The idea that the only way to be an authentic Christian was to be poor, like Christ and his apostles, and be radically poor. And these these Christians dedicated to radical poverty would challenge the church and say, "You're not poor, you know. Uh, you're not poor. You're rich, and you're not really." And they could, they really drive this point home. Like you're antichrist. That's how rich you are. You become antichrist. Well, as you can imagine, the church isn't going to, you know, be poor. And right. so the heretics are the heretics that they're most terrified of are these radical these these people dedicated to radical poverty and you can imagine when they're convicted of heresy well you're not getting much from them <laughs> i mean they're, they're poor that's their whole gig and so um again the myth of the you know the money hungry church trying to you know take all the money from all the people i'm like no they've they definitely burned a bunch of people but most of those people they burned were they they were you know uh spiritual franciscans dedicated to radical poverty and uh, they weren't confiscating much in the way of land from them. They already sold their land and distributed it to the poor or whatever. So it was just a fear of like their authority being challenged because they were rich. And obviously they're not going to stop being rich. Yeah. Who wants to, it's good to be the king, right? It's good to be the Pope. Uh, it's good to be the king, better to be the Pope. Um, yeah. The church is not going to voluntarily become poor all of a sudden, but it's hard to read the Bible and not, you know, not see the the righteousness mm -hmm. in that. If you read the New Testament, and you know, when Jesus says things like it's harder for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven than drive a camel through the eye of a needle, well, yeah, it's really hard to think your way out of that one. And um, but yeah, it's it's it was radical apostolic poverty. You know, they definitely you know, you know the the before they were killing witches, they were killing people because they were concerned about poverty. And uh, even the the mendicant orders, like the Franciscans and the Dominicans, they were created basically as, as damage control that the church realized they couldn't get rid of all of them. So they brought some of them in and said, okay, you can be poor. The church is not going to be poor. You can be poor. And now I want you to hunt the other people dedicated to radical poverty. And he basically the church used the Franciscans and especially the Dominicans. And those became the first heresy hunters, the professional heresy hunters. Divide and conquer. So, I mean, I know, and I mean, as a Catholic, you know, the Catholic Church itself was, it's filled with saints who gave away their fortunes, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, my wife's grandmother has like a statue. I can't remember which saint it is. He has like a doe, and a, you know, by that, but he, it was the same story. It was just like St. Francis. Sa thank you. It was St. Francis. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like St. Francis inherited this great fortune. 
-hmm. and he gave it all away, you know, so you already have a lot of that. So that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, Francis is famous for going into the Vatican and telling the Pope, uh, Peter can no longer say he has no gold and silver. He just, can you imagine the chutzpah of that guy walking into the Vatican and telling, I, Pope, quoting, quoting scripture at the Pope saying, oh, so I guess Peter has no, Peter can't say he doesn't have any silver anymore. Yeah. And uh, man, um, but they eventually they roped him in and they were able to, to, to weaponize his poverty. So they were, they were certainly great manipulators. But again, the church is a complicated business. Um, oh, yeah. um, it's not the kind of thing that, sometimes it's funny because some people will come on, the, on my channel like you have an anti-christian bias and then i have people saying oh you you're too pro-christian like you, you support <laughs> you like you defend the catholic wow. church that's like, probably the best sign that you're doing it right exactly if i'm making yeah. everyone angry uh, uh, like people have watched some of my inquisition episodes and they're like you sound weirdly pro-inquisition i'm like well the inquisition was a mixed bag um then you have to like for instance, it had appellate courts, and if you're accused of a crime and convicted, you could you could appeal, you could appeal all the way to the Pope. You couldn't do that in Protestant countries. If you're convicted of witchcraft, you burn that afternoon. You're accused if you were uh, convicted of witchcraft and, and by the Inquisition, you could appeal to the Pope. And in fact, when appeals went to the local bishops, I think in 75 percent of cases, the cases were squashed. So your your odds of surviving a witchcraft accusation in Catholic Italy under the Inquisition, are much higher than in Protestant Germany. So am I pro-Inquisition? I don't I'm pro-appellate courts. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always important to remember that there are two sides. It's not always black and white. You know? Or it never is. Yeah, it never it is. Ne it's, it's always the gray, you know. It's yeah. And also the reason why a lot of these books survive is the Inquisition. The Inquisition very rarely burned books. Why? Because they were an investigative body. This was evidence. So it's like we can, we can thank them for preserving a lot of texts like this. Uh, I have books actually that come out of Inquisition libraries that were actually held originally in Inquisition libraries, probably under, you know, they're part of prosecutions. And uh, the Inquisition very rarely burned books. They preserved them because they were evidence. And so, again, this is sort of a weird artifact of history that you, you, you end up with a copy of some weird occult book that's clearly on the index, it's banned by the church. And yet there's a stamp in there saying like, you know, property of the Inquisition. Like, <laughs> what in the world? Um, which is kind of cool having a book that is property of the Inquisition. It's very cool. Yeah, it is. How many books are they holding in the Vatican? Uh, well, the Inquisition still exists. It's now called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faithful. Uh, if you get excommunicated, you're still excommunicated by the Inquisition. They still are uh, a, 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 they're still a body. In fact, uh, uh, Ratzinger, the free previous pope, um, he was the head of it. So the lead inquisitor of the Catholic Church became the pope for a little while. So with the Vatican archives, I, I don't know exactly how many books they have, um, or total books, um, but tons. I mean, it's a you know, it's massive library, but it's actually very accessible. This is one of the weird conspiracy theories about the Vatican archives. Is they're completely inaccessible and no one can go there. If you have uh, academic credentials and you write them and say like hey i need to look for this that and the other you can go in there you go like, james oh that's cool right I, you, you can go is, in this is james's thing he talks to me per, you know tells me all the time how much he just wants to go to the vatican and go down in the archives see the secrets you can and see then... <laughs> yeah you can see the, you can see the archives i mean the um you know in fact the folks have ever heard the philosopher spinoza uh spinoza wrote a pretty famous book called the ethics 
mm-hmm. and uh, no manuscripts of it were known to exist. They they all were thought lost once uh, the book was published. But turns out uh, a manuscript of it was found just ten years ago in the Vatican Library. Uh, it was just a randomly entitled "De Deo on God," which you can imagine how many books there are in the Vatican Library called "On God." And uh, okay. but the researcher from the Netherlands was down there looking around and poking around in the archives, and she found it. So. The, the, people talk about, oh, the Vatican has all the secret stuff and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, the Vatican doesn't even know what they have. Right. There, there are researchers finding stuff down there. The Vatican didn't know. them, too. Yeah, see, <laughs> they're like, oh, wow, this is great. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so, uh, we didn't know we had that. Because um, it's so vast. But, uh, yeah, you can go, You can, people go down there all the time. I mean, non-Catholics, as long as you have a good reason um, yeah. to be in there. The only thing that I know is under lock and key and is not going to be allowed to be pro- uh, publicly uh, published or or researched are going to be papal papers. So basically anything from recent popes, probably from the 19th century on, Mm. uh, they just recently opened up some of the, was it Pope Pius? It was the Pope during the Holocaust. And they are slowly Mm. beginning the process of publishing uh, some of his papers because uh, the Catholic church's role or lack of role in what happened in Germany is obviously a lot of, we've got a lot of questions about that. (laughs) And, um, and so those are being opened, but mostly everything else is open. As long as you have a reason to be down there, um, they're pretty, they're, they're, they're more accessible as a library than other public libraries that I know of. So it's easier oh. to get into the Vatican archives than some, you, you would have an easier time getting in that library, as long as you had a good reason to do it, than the Binding Rare Library, which book, rare book library, yeah, which has the Voyage manuscript. Like you have a better odds of getting into the Vatican archives than you do get into mm-hmm. the Binding Rare Book Library. There you go, James. So we just have to write from the podcast because it's like an academic yes. institution, <laughs> right? Yeah, you just have to, uh, again, you just have to have a research program and hey, you write to the librarian. And uh, I know friends of mine who, who've, who've been in there. And, um, you know, like I said, you, you, you know, there's cool stuff down there. For instance, the entire uh, trial transcript of the Galileo trials is all down there. The Gino Bruno trial transcripts are all down there. And, uh, I'm not saying that I know people, but I've heard stories of people who've concocted all kinds of cockamamie reasons to go down there. Just go look at the Gennaro Bruno trial transcripts. There you go. Um, so um, uh, I'm, you know, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff down there, but most <laughs> I, of it very boring. See, and I would be interested, like I would read the, the papers on Pope Pius because, you know, that was during like when the paint of the white line, keeping the Nazis out, you know, and. A lot of things they did uh, during the Holocaust. I'd find that really interesting to read. It's super fascinating stuff. I mean, yeah. even stuff with like with uh, Mussolini, just like the the very fascinating. You know, the Vatican only exists because of a deal they made with Mussolini. And so, you know, uh, I'm not saying the Italians get up to some gangster stuff, but they get up some gangster stuff. And you know, there was some real gangsterific you know discussions between Mussolini and the Pope and uh, you know the establishment of the Vatican. And you know, those are high level, interesting conversations. So, uh, yeah, it's fascinating stuff down there. Um, and I'm sure there's necromancers manuals and all kinds of other weird stuff down there too. Ooh, yeah. Um, I'm sure I know they have them. Um, in fact, um, well, it's not the, it's not the Vatican library. It's the Medici library. The Medici library has, uh, this book called the Fasciculus, uh, which means grab bag in Latin. It's a great, um, great name, but it is a grab bag of magic. And it's just like a book of geomancy, a book of necromancy, a book of alchemy. And it's all bound in one giant book. 
Um, and the, the fascicules, you can you can look at the whole thing online. It's all been digitized. You can just flip through it digitally. Uh, chunks of it have been translated, uh, published and translated. But uh, that's in the Medici Library. And uh, that library eventually made its way into one of the what, big Catholic libraries. So it's one of the greatest collections of, of uh, magic and witchcraft and geomancy or whatever. I think it's called the Fasciculo Geomantia or something like that. But it's sort of a grab bag of magic stuff. But uh, I don't think anyone even knew That's... it existed until, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. But yeah, I can send wow. folks up. A link if you want to flip through it digitally it's really neat yes, yes please because uh, i was just trying to write that and i was like i have no idea how that yeah spells. yeah just, yeah, <laughs> just send, send me an email if folks want to uh in okay. fact if you if you look at my episode on uh necromancy in the medici library um okay. i think i'm pretty sure i have a link in the description to the to the digitized manuscript okay your mileage that. may vary about how good your latin is and how well you are how good you are at reading 15th century oh. manuscripts but has a lot of spooky but, pictures in it. Cool translation. I'll look at it for the spooky pictures. I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some some of it's been translated, um, uh, but not not much of it. I, I would say less than less than five percent of it's been translated. Somewhat loaded question I might have, and maybe out uh, out in left field. But so so we did uh, one of our early episodes was on the topic of, of shadow people. Mm-hmm. It was a topic that, that I had picked because it just always creeped me out. I'm pretty agnostic on the topic. Great but Art Bell. Pre- I remember, I remember being, sitting up late at night listening to Art, Art Bell and talking about shadow yeah, people. Yeah, yes, yeah. Coast to Coast. Yeah, yeah Coast to yes. Coast. I, oh, yeah, I still I, listen to him. That's another show I listen to a lot. Yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah, I remember sitting up late at night like with my little uh, uh, transistor radio on AM listening, listening to Art Bell. Yeah, they've got, they've got them like all on YouTube now. Just like oh, Unsolved sure. Mysteries and Insert... <laughs> like that's another one I will watch when I'm just like got nothing else to do. Yeah. So so we did an episode on it, and I, I had picked the topic because I just figured it would be therapeutic for me, therapeutic for me if we could just uh, if I could research it and then we could crack jokes about it, mm-hmm. which it was. But uh, you know, I, I was some of the things I was learning about it was like you know some of the stories and surprised me. Uh, there are traditions going as far back as as um, if memory serves. Uh, Native American tribes that had similar stories of, of shadow people like creatures and whatnot. Ever since that episode, though, we've had some listeners contact us and tell us, like, "Hey, I have a shadow person." So it's that's which is only you know raised the creepy value. Yeah. But I, I bring that up to ask: uh, Have you run into any sort of uh, similar descriptions of entities across your breadth of exploring antiquity and on on esoteric topics? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 these kind of entities, um, this would go for things like night terrors or even aliens, modern aliens, um, uh, gray aliens that like kidnap people and stuff. Um, I, I think that 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 there probably is a physiological explanation for this that um, that that they're the result of night terrors and stuff like that, yeah. uh, and that I suspect that there's a reason why we get them in every culture. It's probably because it's some it's some artifact of our brain. And our brain makes these makes these uh, images, you know, when we're paralyzed or in sleep or whatever, and we see these things out of the corner of our eyes. We see these things in sort of semi-lucid or liminal states. Um, that that the, they're you know they're artifacts of our, our of our neurology. So yeah, I mean, you see them in lots of cultures: elves, uh, ghosts. I mean, the amount of ghosts that you see in pre-modern texts oh, is uh, just shocking. Yeah. They're just everywhere. 
just like, oh, there's a ghost. Um, and um, yeah, demons are ubiquitous. I mean, the, the Talmud even says uh, that if 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 uh, if you could see demons, that's all you would see. There, there's so many of them. Oh wow! Uh, that's that your field of vision. They even say that that's why scholars, you know, scholars don't they don't do much working. They're like you know OG gangsters. They don't they don't they don't walk fast. They they sit down and study all day, but their clothes still wear out. Why do their clothes wear out? Their clothes wear out. Their demons constantly rubbing up against them. Um, so there's you know the, in the Talmud it's, it's pandemonium full of demons. Is literally what that word means. So I think that that all these creatures. Um, they haunt the imagination probably because I think that they're probably hardwired into us at some level that um, whether it's gray aliens or demons or, or shadow people or, or what have you. Now, I think they take a, a specific cultural form uh, depending on what culture you're in, right? If you're, you know, you're in a Native American culture, you're going to get the Native American version. If you're in Europe, you're going to get a demon. If you're, um, you know, if you're Jewish, you're going to get another kind of entity or something. Yeah. So that'd be my guess. Um, but I'm not a cultural anthropologist, so it's hard for me to, to speculate outside of that. Um, but sure, the idea that there are malevolent, um, malevolent supernatural entities composed of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh, all over, all over. Um, I mean, even early accounts of the devil in, in the new world uh, almost always is described as a, a, a dark man. Not a dark man in, in the sense of a, a racialized, you know, darkness and uh, African. Not that, but like black is in black. Yeah. That um, that the the devil is thought of as as uh, an absence of you know. This is Augustine. Augustine thinks of evil as the absence of goodness. Well, if God's creation is a creation of goodness, at least at some level, then the devil has to be an absence of that, and therefore the devil appears as kind of like a you know a black hole, as a a, as a, a gaping wound in reality. And uh, but a conscious wound in reality, a malevolent wound in reality. So when you often see depictions of the devil, or descriptions that are left theologians, and sometimes by people that claim to have encountered the devil, it's never horned and goat-looking. It's just right. a, a wound in reality, an absence of a blackness that's moving and operating in the world. And I think that that image of of evil as a as a, an absence of goodness that's conscious is to me deeply deeply terrifying and um that's a ubiquitous image and 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 sort of at least christian theology yeah cool well um so a lighter question uh what are your favorite top three to five books or to frame it another way your library catches on fire oh, which God. three to five books do you rush for uh so i have a bunch of really old books so i'm gonna like just try to those all out the window. Um, <laughs> one of my 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 books I would not want to see consigned to the fires. Um, I have a I have an opera, uh, the opera uh, opera omnia of Cornelius Agrippa, who wrote the three books of occult philosophy. Um, I just secured a, a deal with a very very prominent bookseller to acquire the uh, the original first edition, fifteen thirty three. So uh, hopefully within a week or so, I will have a. a first edition of uh, Agrippa's three books on, on occult philosophy here uh, in, in the collection. So I definitely want to save that. Um, I have a copy of The City of God from 1486, um, printed on February 9th, so the day before my birthday. So just 500 years you know, <laughs> before I was born. <laughs> um, just had, I just had to catch you up to do. Um, so I think I'd probably save the, that copy of The City of God. Um, 
which also is a very important book nine deals with demons and magic and uh, that informs all later conceptions of, of magic in the west and demonology in the west are all derivative at some level of, of book nine of, of augustine's the city of god which most people don't ever get to because it's book nine by the time you've gotten to book nine you need to be super catholic to get through all that um but then book nine's all like here's the weird stuff um <laughs> so if you just want to read the weird stuff from augustine and, and uh it's in book nine um I also have the complete works of Paracelsus, the alchemist, uh, cool. from 1658. Yeah. But I have, uh, it's a huge tome. It's like, it, it really is Harry Potter-esque. It's massive. But it's a complete works of Paracelsus from 1658. It's, not, it's a Latin translation uh, of the original German. It's not the best edition. The, the original German Paracelsus was a, he was a weirdo in lots of ways. And his, his German is especially weird. So it's better to read it in the German rather than the Latin translation. But I'm going to save that one too. So that's three. Um, oh, the copy of the six-volume Theatrum Chemicum, which is the most important collection of uh, alchemical uh, texts ever published. When Isaac Newton decided to become an alchemist, it was the first thing he published. He bought it was a six-volume collection of the Theatrum Chemicum. So um, wouldn't want to see that go. I'd like to also believe that many of these, books, like the Economicon, many of these books just can't burn. Yeah, find them in the ashes and some other like. <laughs> no, some will today. probably, some will probably fly out the window. Yeah, they'll fly right, fly right. away. And then, hey, <laughs> if, they, if they fly away, then I'll I'll bid them adieu. Um, but yeah, I think most of the books I would say would be my really old books, um, just because they've survived so much. I would not want to see them burned on my watch. God right. forbid. Cool. Uh, so so just and this is just really quick side question, but uh, my geologist wife was begging me to ask you, and I can't see them at the moment, but I've seen them behind you in other videos, uh, what the rocks are behind you. Oh, that's a great question. So uh, some of them are cinnabar. Cinnabar is uh, is uh, 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 where, where you extract mercury from. Um, and so that was a pretty important uh, uh, mineral in alchemy. Uh, the other is galena. Uh, which is uh, also where uh, silver is typically bound up in. It's it's, uh, it's uh, bound up with lead. Um, I have some stibnite over there, and I have oh, I have some uh, uranium, oh, uh, cool. which is uh, fun, and I have some trinitite. Um, trinitite being the the uh, sand that was fused when the atomic bomb went off in uh at trinity in new mexico it it, it uh, turned all of that sand into, into atomic glass and so those fragments of atomic glass uh that were created in the inferno that was the trinity the trinity explosion uh, they still emit uh, the random alpha wave uh, alpha particle so the little geiger counter and it's fun to sort of um i'll sit next to the trinitite and just watch the uh the graph on the geiger counter move and it'll yeah. be flat mostly and also it'll peak and they're like <laughs> oh just an alpha particle just flew off it's still emitting radiation oh that's uh, cool all the way since uh since the bomb went off uh, that uh that oppenheimer bequeathed upon the world so uh favorite metal bands favorite metal band um i think that the the, the best metal record uh that i know of it's probably uh, uh, Weakling's Dead of Dreams, I would say. That's the one record that I, I go back to over and over. It's the only one they ever released, and that's the one that I like 
uh, I go back to over and over and over and over again. I, I think that's probably my favorite metal record, and, and I guess that makes it a, my favorite metal band. I think the other metal bands that I, I really like are like Wolves in the Throne Room, Prowlis. Um, um, really got in, recently into Black Braid, Native American black metal. Oh, cool! Yeah, most of the metal, most of the most of the most of the metal I listen to is, is, is black metal. Although I love the old Scandinavian stuff too. You know, I can, now when I go to the gym, it's like, all right, let's listen to you know, right, uh, right, Celtic Frost or whatever. So, um, which is funny because you would think I would listen to that stuff when I'm writing esoteric episodes, but I'm mostly I'm listening to like video game music from the nineties. I'm just like listening to the final fantasy six soundtrack over and over. Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like chip tune music or listening to uh, just whatever uh, square soft. Yep. Chrono trigger <laughs> um, <laughs> soundtrack. Yeah. My, my, my car booms final fantasy 14 music all the time. So <laughs> yeah. I, hey man, the final fantasy games, they got some, they got some, get some real, uh, real zingers. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, How'd you break your arm twice in one day? Uh, this is a great, this is a great question. Um, so the, the first way I broke it was I was wrestling with my uncle and my uncle, uh, you know, like every eighties uncle was like, would be Chuck Norris or whatever. And, um, got me in some kind of arm bar or something. And he turned away and he was trying to get me to say uncle to like, let me go. And I wasn't having it. And so I just like yanked as hard as I could. And he was turned away and just didn't let go and um so i managed to break my own arm the first time uh although he was culpable as well so i, I went so i went to the hospital and they, they said it or whatever and i came home and uh my brother and i had bunk beds and uh he was down on the bottom bunk or down on the bottom by castle grayskull or whatever it was you know and he kept calling me a cripple and like you know I'm not i can't take that i'm not having my younger brother call no. me a cripple and so I did the only rational thing that you would do was like do an atomic elbow with your broken arm off the nice. bunk, like macho man, Randy Savage style. And so of course I landed and broke it again in a different place. And I so go, go back to the hospital. And now at this point, like child protective services is getting involved. So like they interview my brother oh, no. and, I, and they're like, so how did you really break your arm? And I was like, my brother's calling me a cripple. Uh, and I wasn't having it. And they were like, and my brother's like, yeah, I'll call him a cripple. And so they like, you know, they interviewed us separately and turned out, you know, obviously my parents weren't abusing us or whatever. Um, but then they put in the caps. They're like, you're pregnant. Fuck on me. Sorry, I don't know if I can uh, curse. Um, you can. Yeah, they're like, yeah, he's like, you're not, we're not, you can't break this one again. And so, yeah, I broke it twice in one day. Uh, I can still remember like the, the, the wet crunching sound of it breaking uh, when I, uh, oh. when I broke it with, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it felt like that. Um, and my brother laughed at me. It's like, now you're really a cripple, brothers. <laughs> you rat bastard. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I broke it like at the very beginning of the summer, so I had to go through a Mississippi summer with a cast. No, uh, so gross. Like the smell, the smell when they took it off. I was like, like I don't know what young. It just. <laughs> the foulest smell and mad like the, a season Hurtling. of mississippi yeah sip a season of mississippi funk oh uh, gathered into a, a cat it was bad Ugh. but yeah i think there's a picture of my upside of me sleeping yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was like okay i have to ask yeah. uh your bio on your website also mentions that you're a home brewer so what are you currently brewing 
Um, you know, it's funny. I just we just had a big cold sweat, a cold snap here in, in Michigan, and uh, I don't do a lot of brewing anymore. But the one thing that I uh, I do more distilling actually now. I'm actually working on oh. an absinthe uh, that's coming out with a. I teamed nice. up with a local distillery here, and we are recreating a historical absinthe um, that's uh, now in rest, and it'll hopefully come out sometime this winter. Oh, um, that's exciting. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great, a lot of fun working. I worked on smaller stills, and it was really great to work on a, a fifty gallon, which is still small you know, comparatively. But you know, when you you go from a five gallon to a fifty gallon, you, you jump an order of ma- an order of magnitude. Like oh, this is cool. Yeah. Um. So, but at, brewing wise, what I always do, and I need to get ahead of it now. I may have missed my window. Is I do. I love to do sake in the wintertime. Um, oh. Brewing sake is a lot of fun because um, it's multiple parallel fermentation. So. If you brew beer, you know your 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 all of the, the uh, all the enzymes you need to convert your uh, your starches to sugars are actually in the hull of the of the barley or whatever wheat, or rye, whatever. But with rice, it's not. Rice is just a carbohydrate, so you have to have something to 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 break those carbohydrates, convert those carbohydrates to sugar, so that the yeast can convert the sugars into alcohol. And so you use another microorganism to to do that in parallel. And it's koji. Uh, it's the same microorganism that used to make soy sauce and stuff. So it's a it's a more technical brew. Sake is a much more technical brew, and it's um, and also you, everything you learn as a home brewer you have to unlearn. So it's uh, open fermentation. It's fermentation very cold. It's like a fifty degree Fahrenheit fermentation. It's a much longer fermentation. Sake is like an eighty day uh, process, start to finish. Oh. So so it's it's a fun it's a fun thing to do. Um, and even small temperature variations, you, you know, like a lot of fermented products, yield a very different thing. And sake is just a very, I think, a very elegant. You know, the Japanese they they got some things figured out, and mm. uh, it's a very elegant mm. uh, uh, beverage. I, I really love sake, and yeah. so it's also nice because um, you do it at the coldest part of the year traditionally, and it's because it takes whatever eighty something days to finish. You're basically it's a countdown to spring. And so, uh, living as a southerner, oh, living nice. in, the, in as a southerner living in the Midwest, where we have very dark, very cold winters, mm-hmm. um, trust me. By by now, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the point where my my my, my wife is from Southern California, and mm-hmm. we have we've learned like you just have to get out of here. You just have to go to like Mexico or something, because otherwise, like you begin questioning whether you should exist or not. Come you know, February. <laughs> my my family is originally from michigan and they oh, really a lot of, like my dad's side ended up moving mostly down here in arkansas okay <laughs> for, for where, jobs where... but also because of the cold <laughs> yeah yeah it's it it uh yeah the cold and the dark i don't you know uh, but i will say it's uh there's something meditative about the, the cold and the dark i like it it's uh i like four seasons which I is just nice. Uh, I like having four yeah. seasons as opposed to my brother. He lives in New Orleans, which they have just like uh, heat and hurricanes. And that's like yeah. two seasons. <laughs> yeah, that's not pass, for me. I'll pass on both of those. All right. And since we're a little podcast of horrors, have you had any paranormal experiences or anything unexplainable like that happen to you? Anything yeah, anything spooky. spooky. So maybe, maybe. My general answer is no, because not in my adult life. Have I ever seen a ghost or or an ex- experience anything uh, supernatural? I've, I've attended exorcisms and stuff, and so those are weird. But um, my, um, but yeah, I've been I've been on panels to deal with people who are, are allegedly possessed. 
Um, oh. That's another story. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a fun side hustle. Um, but I will, th- uh, I will say this. I will say this. I'm talking. I can have. I'm happy to talk about that more as well. But um, when I was a kid, we used to. Uh, my mother's had. My mother's family had land up in the Mississippi Delta, and it was this old decrepit house in the Delta. We would go, you know, fix up in the summers, but we never fixed it up. It was just always falling down, and we would just stay there for a few nights and do our, you know, familial Southern diligence to our, you know, land that we allegedly owned or whatever. I have no idea. So we go stay in this like decrepit old house and uh, in the Mississippi Delta, which is just all haunted. Um, you know, that's the land of Robert Johnson, where he sold a soul to the devil to you know learn to play mm-hmm. the blues and all that. It's just a, the Delta is a haunted place. Crossroads. And anyway, yeah, the crossroads in, in Cleveland, Mississippi. There, it depends on where you ask where that actually happened. But at any rate, I distinctly remember there was a down the hill from the house, there was a, a creek or something there, and um, mostly dry but had a little bit of water in the summertime and my brother and i were down there playing and i remember distinctly and i've asked my brother about this and he doesn't remember it at all so take the memory of children for what it's worth <laughs> but um but that, i remember looking down the the creek a little bit and maybe some distance away i don't know quarter of a football field you know 25 feet or something i don't know there was a girl standing there just like standing at the edge of the creek uh and dressed in like clearly not normal clothing for like the 80s like she was clearly dressed in some anachronistic way i don't know what i imagine in my head but you know some 1800 clothes or something i don't know uh whatever that means and i remember calling out to her and saying hey and her just not moving and and i remember thinking at the time oh she's just really stuck up she must be rich because she's just ignoring me and i'm trying to talk to her she's like fancy and she's just ignoring me and my brother was there too and like i said he doesn't remember this and so at any rate i i Big set of whatever. Yeah, I'm not going to talk to her anymore. She's like fancy pants. And so I was like, go back to doing whatever muddling around I was doing in the creek. And I turned around, she wasn't there anymore. And um, that night, I remember going back to the to the house. And it's like lit by kerosene lamps. And it's just old and crappy and evil. You know, it just feels like an evil old house. I hated being there. And uh, I told my parents about this, that there was a girl down there. And she was dressed like this or whatever. And my dad's like, there's no girl down there. He's like, why? And I was like, how do you know? He's like, there's no one lives within three miles of this. Like, there's no one. There's no little girl by herself down by that lake. Like, we're in the middle of nowhere in the Delta. Like, you, what did you, you didn't see that. You saw something else. Uh, my dad's not a superstitious person. I don't think he believes in ghosts or whatever. So I think he was just like, mm-hmm. you're making up stories. So I don't know. I don't know what I saw. I don't, I don't know. Uh, um, I remember that night I went the hell out of there. That was for sure. I was like, done with this. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like I said, I've asked my brother about it. He doesn't remember at all. Uh, he doesn't even remember going down there. And I remember asking my parents about it later in life. Mm-hmm. And they did remember me mentioning it. Um, and it creeped them out of it. They, they were like, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're like, yeah, we don't like that. There shouldn't be any kid down there. Like, who's who's here? Um, so that was weird. Um I, I lived in a house. I have a friend of mine um, who I trust completely, um, and uh, we were living this whole this old house for a while. And it was I agree I agree it was a creepy weird old house. And he alleges he saw um, he came to knock on the door to see if I was there and saw me standing in the window and knocked on the door and said, "Oh, go go up the stairs and see Justin." And uh, my brother was there. And Justin's not here. He's gone. He's gone to the synagogue. He's like, I just saw him on the window. He's absolutely up there. 
and uh, I was not up there. And then um, this is funny. The, the same friend of mine, um, the night that uh, the Chappelle show had uh, the Rick James skit. Yes. So the same night that that skit came on, he stayed over uh, and slept on my couch. And when I got up, he was gone. I asked him, like, hey, Russell, where'd you go? And he was like, I had to leave. I was like, why? He's like, because I kept people, I kept feeling people like touching me through the night. Oh. He's like, people kept grabbing me. And at nope. first I thought it was, I thought it was like y'all like messing with me. And then I was like, I'd wake up, like he would pretend to be asleep and he would feel something like grab his shoulder. And then he like jumped up to like, you know, like, haha, I got you. And it was nothing there. And he was like, and he was like, and he, he left and he was like, he was like, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Justin. I'm not coming back to that house ever again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't blame him. Uh, he's like, I'm never, I'm never going back to that house ever again. He's like, I love you, but we have to go hang out somewhere else. I'm not going back <laughs> there for any reason. Uh, and we moved out of the house not long after that. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't believe in that stuff. I don't believe I'm a materialist. I'm a very boring, I have a very boring metaphysics, um, but I'm also not, so I like to believe I'm not so arrogant uh, and not so hubristic as to let my own beliefs uh, become sort of a, a final verdict on what's real. I think we often let ourselves do that. We let our beliefs yeah. tell us that we, we've reached the final verdict on whatever is really real. I have what I believe and I don't want it to be the final verdict. It's, yeah. it's sort of where I, I want to say, this is where I land. And when new evidence comes in, if new evidence comes in, I want to be open to to going where the data leads me, to where the evidence leads me, as opposed to saying I have all the data I need and I'm done. I'm, I've figured mm -hmm. things out. I don't want to go in that direction. But, you know, I have a lot of weird old books that have all kinds of, like, stuff that are, you know, books conjuring the devil, whatever. Um, and people <laughs> people have been to my house and were like, yeah, it's a weird mojo. I'm not staying here. It's a weird. I don't like these books. These books have, like, you know, people who are clairvoyant or whatever, like, I'm not getting anywhere near that dance. Um, but I, I don't, you know, um, and they've described it. It's like, imagine being blind and, and having a blind person telling you that there's no such thing as colors. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we would think that's completely ridiculous or, you know, uh, a, a deaf person saying that sound doesn't really exist. Well, they just say, that's what you are. You're just a, if you tell me there's no ghosts and there's no spirits or no, whatever, you're just like a blind person. You're just telling me there's no colors. Like I see colors, I can see them. Mm -hmm. Like, like I can feel the mojo coming off that book, and I don't like it. Uh, just like in a blinding light, you wouldn't look at it. A, a weird sensation of, of malevolence or something, you wouldn't be around it. Um, so, what do I make of that? I don't know. But what I what I do want to say is that I've read enough history, I've read enough of this material, I've read enough other stuff to know that um, my beliefs represent more my own narrow experiences. Than they do the, the totality of, of reality and to maintain some degree as much as i can maintain of humility uh knowing that, that it's about that says more about my own limitations than it does about what's really real that allows me to say you know this is where i land and i have to be honest about where i really land but at the same time um is what is where i land indicative of reality very probably not very probably not because none of us are <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah. And so like you just like be able to name that and own it and not be not be um you know, because it's so easy for people to be like come an expert in something and be able to preach it from the mountaintop as if no they're 
they can yeah. preach the final verdict on what this stuff is. And let me tell you, I cannot do that. And I will not do that. I can, I cannot do that. And I don't want to do that. And anyone who does do that, uh, it's full of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing with us today. Yes. Thank, thank you, you yeah, so much. So thank you for coming. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, I, it's, it's always fun to, to meet new folks and, um, uh, just to have fun conversations and like, you know, we're living in times where, where we're so connected and yet we live in a pandemic of loneliness. And so it's really fantastic mm -hmm. to be able to like meet new people and have fun conversations. And, you know, it's, we have all this damn technology around us all the time. We might as well put it to good use. And so I really appreciate right. you guys taking the time to invite me over and, and uh, hang out. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. We, we might have to, to bug you again in the future at some point. Absolutely. Feel free. <laughs> yeah. Feel free. <laughs> All righty, guys. Well, thank you guys for joining us on Little Podcast of Horrors. You can uh, check out uh, Dr. Sledge. You actually have a YouTube channel, Esoterica. You can check that out. And, of course, your website. Yes, just justinsledge.com. All um, right. And I have no other social media because social media scares the living. I'd rather deal with the, <laughs> with actual demons walking into my house than deal with Instagram <laughs> or Twitter. You're very wise. It's kind of horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, like I, will, I will gladly deal with demons. Like I, I know what to do with demons. I have no idea what to do with Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our first real deal academic. Yeah. We're getting fancy pants over here. So, so I gotta say, I am, I am, it was kind of the reality of this being equal parts, a little sad and also very exciting. And, you know, he's talking about Western esotericism as a field of study is new as of the nineties now. And uh, I remember from another video I watched uh, with him in it, he's talked about, um, I, if I'm quoting him correctly, there's only three universities out there that really offer any sort of study in it. But Amsterdam is like the one right now, but it's starting to, to pick up so i'm really excited about the future of that field growing it that's is something yeah. we need i agree i can i can care <laughs> so what do you think guys i shouldn't have gotten my degree in french i should have gone to amsterdam <laughs> right. i mean i'm kind of glad i got my degree in history i just wish now i'd gone further with it but yeah that was a and if you enjoyed this episode or if you have questions about Esoterica, uh, feel free to email us at littlepodcasthorrors at gmail.com. Oh, we also have a Patreon. I don't know if you've noticed that because we've talked about it in we every do. single episode. Every now and then. Got a Patreon. Come join our Discord. We uh, can chat about the episodes. And I believe James and Chris play games. I don't really it's do the, that much. But... <laughs> Uh, and, we you can you can also do a one time donation now. We yes. you can buy us a coffee. So uh, a link for that like will coffee. be in. Yes, we do. Uh, a link for that will be in the description. Um, and you can still one time donate through Spotify as well. So you know, and yeah. links to everything, all of the above. Little podcast, mm -hmm. all in one place. It's easy. That's right. LittlePodcastOfHorrors.com uh, I definitely recommend everybody listening consider checking out the YouTube channel Esoterica. I mean, if you follow any, any sort of the episodes we cover, especially especially if you like magic, especially if you like mysticism, especially if you like any of the crossroads it has with religion, history, philosophy, especially if you like alchemy. He has a whole video series on alchemy. It's amazing. Check out 
check it out esoterica lots of playlists topical it's just as he has said it, it, accurately it's college level content and i can binge it like crazy yep other than that hey lashtar hey lashtar hey lashtar miss that guy yeah man <laughs> catch up sometime